Greetings and good morning once again. It's good to be together in worship and fellowship like this. Will you please join me in praying? Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Would you please help us to see afresh with the eyes of our heart your generous, exuberant, and joyful mercy towards us, a mercy that was costly to yourself, but more than willingly given. And I pray it would transform us again to be people through whom mercy flows into the world and that we would be able to do it with generosity, exuberance, and joy. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. This morning I wanted to offer some reflections on the passage that Tom Combs read for us earlier from Luke chapter 6. To me, it's uh, one of the most powerful passages in the Gospels, the way it hits and strikes us. It's this passage where just after Jesus has done many powerful acts of mercy and healing and love to a large crowd of people, he calls his disciples to himself and he begins to teach them in the midst of this larger group who's hearing, and he starts to talk to them about discipleship. This is a passage about discipleship, about true discipleship. And he begins to tell them things like, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. From there it goes into Jesus, some of his most unique and powerful and radical teaching, where he tells us more than once to love our enemies to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us and pray for those who abuse us. He says, as we wish that others would do to us, we should do so to them. I'll say more about that passage in just a moment. This is one of those passages that you you can't or you shouldn't just read through it, like in your morning devotional. You know, it's sort of like, Here's the words of Jesus. He's telling us to do these delightful things, and uh, this is great and encouraging. Ready for the day. Now, he's saying things right here that are meant to stop us in our tracks, to make us think, whoa, whoa, wait a second. What did he just say? And wait a second, is that for real? <laughs> I, find myself, I find the passage beautiful and haunting. I think it's convicting as well as inspiring. I stand before the passage undone and helpless but also drawn in and directed. I find myself challenged by it, as well as convinced that this is how things must be. In many ways, the passage preaches itself, doesn't it? Just read it and take it seriously. But, you know, since we're all here together and we got a few minutes, you know, I reckon I'll say a thing or two about it. Now, some of you, when we read this passage, you might be thinking, okay, now he's going to nuance the passage in such a way so it's not so really so challenging. I'm not planning to do that. 
Or you read the passage and say, okay, now the sermon is going to tell us that it actually means something else. It doesn't really mean what it says it means. He's, he's, Jesus is, uh, this is allegorical or something, right? I'm not going to do that either. Because I believe that the Christian disciple, the true disciple, is someone who is so filled with God's love that we want to know not how can I get out of doing this, but how can I be faithful to this? How can I embody this for Christ's own sake? For Jesus did say in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in 1 John 2, 5, it says, whoever keeps Christ's commands in him, truly the love of God is perfected. That is to say, God's love has accomplished its intended outcome. It's caused us to be people who joyfully embrace the commands of Christ and seek to obey them. Some people, when they read passages like this, they might think, well, we just need to remember that Christ has already done everything, so I don't really have to do this stuff. And I think that's kind of a misunderstanding. Certainly, Christ has done all that is needed to save us, to secure us as God's own forever. But Christ has done what he has done for us so that we can now do the things that Christ wants us to do. That is to say, Jesus has reconciled us to God. We couldn't do this for ourselves. He has atoned for our sin and justified us or declared us righteous before God. But he has also sent his spirit to live in us, to make us new. And that includes strengthening us by grace to walk and live in the power of the spirit. Yes, we're going to do so imperfectly, and we shouldn't worry too much about that. But the mission remains to see God's name hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as in heaven, in and through us. And that, too, is a gift of grace. So the passage, if you're familiar with the Gospels, reads very similarly to the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And we can assume that Jesus probably said similar things as he walked around from village to village, sometimes adapting them to the local needs or circumstances or moment. So we can read Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 and Luke chapter 6 kind of on their own terms, allow them to make the point they're intending to make. And in this case, which is different from Matthew's account, we have Jesus giving four blessings followed by four woes, and they correspond to each other, right? The blessed are the poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted. And then woe to the rich, full, laughing, and spoken well of. The passage turns things upside down from our usual way of thinking about life. And it corresponds to this theme of reversal that you see throughout Luke's gospel. Think about the parable of the rich fool or the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Here Jesus is saying to the people in that first group, and it's important to note that most of the people he's talking to in this moment are already in the first group of people. They are those who are poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted. And he's trying to help them see that you're actually in a blessed state. And so this word, blessed are, blessed is a Greek word that can mean happy or flourishing or how good for those who are in this condition. He's not saying God has blessed you by making you poor, but that God will bless you in your poverty, in your hunger and sadness and persecution. When it gets to the woe, it's, the woe is not like a normal word that we use today. You know, it's like somebody does something bad to you. You don't usually say, woe to you. 
or woe is me. It's a way of saying how terrible for or how sad for, Jesus says. When it speaks to the poor, he says, you'll be given the kingdom. You will be satisfied. You're going to experience a reversal of fortunes. You will rejoice and you have a great reward in being persecuted for faithfulness sake. It's as he's saying to them, God knows your situation. God is with you in this situation. And there's reason to hope, to live, to continue to love and trust God. Jesus is certainly not applauding those who put these people in that situation. Nor is he giving permission to keep people in that situation or to put others in that position. It's not an effort at romanticizing poverty. But surely, on the one hand, probably many of us in this room could give testimony to times when we've been in periods of overwhelming loss or overwhelming need and had God show up in our lives in a powerful way and reveal himself to us in such a way that we wouldn't have experienced if we hadn't been in that condition of need. But on the other hand, most of the time when people are in this condition, they don't feel that God is present. Rather, they feel mostly that God is absent and wonder if God has abandoned them. And that's why Jesus speaks to them and speaks to them first to assure them and encourage them. No, God is with you in this. And God has plans for you in this. This is not wasted. It's also important for us to remember that much of the Bible is written to or for people who were physically or socially politically oppressed, who were powerless and marginalized. And those of us who do not share their position need to take note of that when we read and apply Scripture. Most of this is written to people who are experiencing some kind of powerlessness or oppression. So that when we apply scripture, we don't just apply it like the powerful would, but like the powerless would. When Jesus speaks to the rich, he's, it's like he's saying, this situation that you're in could give way to sorrow and sadness. You might actually be hindered by it. Even worse, you might miss out on what God is doing. And this is especially a woeful position to be in if you are in it at the expense of other people. It's like, yikes, most of us would rather be in the latter position than in the former. Am I right? I mean, most of us aren't saying, I want to be poor, hungry, weeping, and persecuted. In fact, we're doing the things that we are doing in life because we want to be rich, full, laughing, and spoken well of. We're catering our life to experience those very things that Jesus says, woe to. Jesus is teaching us to prize that former condition and warning against the latter, to be suspicious of it. Suspicious of what it might do to our soul. What it might mean for us in being a part of what God's doing in the world. In that sense, I think the passage hits us directly. And it should cause us to pause and consider our ways. What would Jesus say to us, like this room specifically? If he were to say these similar things to us this morning, what would he say to me or to you? I think when we read Jesus' challenging statements like that, there's a propensity to be defensive inside, to immediately say, wait, 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 wait. there's nothing wrong with being well-off, liked, or privileged, or wealthy. Maybe not. But we can't take Scripture seriously without realizing that what we do with that is crucially important. What we do with that wealth or position or privilege 
And for many people, we need to recognize it's not even possible for them to ever be in that position. And so Jesus is interested in encouraging those folks. The downtrodden. While warning the well off. It causes me to think and consider, maybe I should resist the excesses of our culture for the sake of others who don't have the same opportunities or gifts. How can I do that? And I should especially consider, does my fullness or my laughter result from another's emptiness or sorrow? Is my fullness at their expense? I think no Christian can be content with that. What if I'm well-liked for the wrong reasons? Because I'm compromising my faith, or worse, denying my Lord. These words are challenging. They're meant to sober us to reality, to wake us up to the world that God loves and desires to save. See, all of us are recipients of extreme, lavish gifts of grace. And it's important to understand that Christianity is grace and gift all the way down. And that grace is meant to be received. It's meant to connect us deeper to Christ in relationship. But it's also meant to transform us to be different kinds of people. People who are then going to seek to follow Jesus' will and his ways. That's heavy stuff. Hard stuff. So let me pause and tell you a story. When my girls were about age three and five or so, there's two and a half years difference between them, we were driving down the road one day, and uh, the younger one, Ava, was, uh, you know, she was kind of threatening the older one with, uh, by saying that, hey, when we get home, we're going to play this. And you better play this with me or else. I can't remember what the threat was. But it, in my mind, it, it struck me as, ooh, here's a teaching moment, a parental teaching opportunity. And so I said, Ava, I asked her permission if I could tell this story. I said, Ava, you remember what Jesus taught us? that we should treat other people the way we want them to treat us. And I hear her say under her breath in the back seat, I didn't hear him say that. (laughs) She says, I didn't hear him say that. And I think, well, I didn't actually hear him say that either. I read it in the Bible. I thought, oh, I need to teach my kids the Bible. (laughs) Of course, this is the same one who once said when we were at the wind-shaped pool, and uh, you're not allowed to go down the slide two people at a time. And she asked, Daddy, can we do it? Can we go down the slide two people at a time? And I said, no, I don't think we're allowed to do that. And she says, that's okay. If we get in trouble, at least we got to do it once. <laughs> I don't think that's how the rules are meant to work. I mean, you have a point. <laughs> and it's not really that bad of a thing to do, right? Uh, But the truth is, Ava said something that day that rings true. I think oftentimes we live as if we haven't heard Jesus say this stuff, the stuff in these passages. And we just read over it as that that's just Jesus' talk. Kind of goes in one ear and out the other. But how can we do that when he says things like this? In chapter 6, verse 31, And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? 
Even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. One of the things that strikes me about this passage is it's as if Jesus is saying, if we take Him seriously and seek to live and love like He does, it will mean suffering and we don't want to suffer brian talked about this last week sometimes some of us think we maybe shouldn't suffer and it certainly provides an enigma sometimes for us there are different forms of suffering some of those we can seek to be relieved from and we should and some should be embraced for faithfulness sake that is to say it says jesus is saying you should be willing to accept being wronged for the sake of faithfulness Now, we suffer for different reasons in life. Sometimes we suffer for doing wrong, in which case we should return to the Lord, for he is merciful. Sometimes we suffer at the hands of others, their evil, their abusive actions. And from these things, we can and should seek deliverance, for God is a rescuer and a protector. But his command is that we are not to respond in kind. Sometimes we suffer in body or mind which case God is a helper and a healer. But in this passage, Jesus is talking about suffering for love's sake, which is what the word passion means, to suffer for love's sake. That is to act against self-interest for another person's good. And he's calling his disciples to embrace that, to trust God for his reward. Sometimes we will suffer for doing good. And Jesus is saying there's blessing in that. Christ meets us in it. I think there's a powerful example of this in the life of Martin Luther King Jr. Who, when he was a young man, in his late 20s, he was giving a speech one night, and his home was bombed. And he didn't know if his wife or daughter were even still alive. And yet he dismisses a crowd in peace, goes home, finds competing mobs. And he goes out to them, and he tells them to go home and love their neighbor. To love their enemy. You see, Martin Luther King was uniquely motivated by a Christian understanding of love. It's what compelled him to act and what caused him to withdraw from acting. At times he got criticized for being motivated that way, that this love was a kind of weakness. But thank God, he responded by saying, I do not seek to win at the expense of my enemy. Rather, he was, saying, or he was saying, I don't want to win in such a way that my enemy is, ceases to exist. He said, I want to win in such a way that there's a better world for both of us. This is loving your enemy. Now, I'm not claiming to be able to sort out all the difficulties or complexities related here, but to draw our attention to the larger point. Has the love of God made any real difference in our life. This seems to be what Jesus is getting at. Has the mercy and love of God made any real difference in your life, or are we still just like everyone else? Does knowing the love and grace of God keep us the same or make us more self-protective like the world is? Or does it make us strong and therefore ready to give our lives away? Does it make us stronger and more able than than others to love the otherwise unlovable? 
It seems to me that Jesus is indicating that it can and should make us stronger and more able to love the otherwise unlovable enemy? Does it make us merciful? When it does, I think that's when the image of God is really on display in us, when we are reflecting his own goodness into the world. If you consider our own rather crazy political moment, when too many people confuse partisan politics with their Christian faith or divorce the two altogether, we need to be asking uniquely and especially at this time, does God's mercy and love through the commands of Christ our Lord make any discernible difference in how we act in the world? I read just in the last couple of weeks where a well-known professing Christian has said more essentially that Christians cannot take Jesus seriously in this very passage. That if we, the person was arguing that the culture war is so uh, difficult at this moment that it demands the kinds of action that must dismiss what Jesus has to teach us. Essentially, the person was saying, we are culture warriors first and only Christians second. But the way this thing works is that for a Christian to say that I am something else first is to say that I'm not a Christian. Because for us, there is one Lord. There is one sovereign king. There is one kingdom that we're seeking to build, and it's his. He's our savior and teacher, our example and our power. And the true disciple can never set aside Jesus' words for political, economic expediency. It seems to me that Christ is telling us something that's hard to hear and hard to apply impossible to do and yet he's saying this is the way of true blessedness if you want true flourishing if you want a better world for all of us this is the path and sometimes faithfulness faithfulness to jesus will lead us into positions of being poor hungry weeping and persecuted and jesus knows this so he doesn't just give us the command and say there it is go try to do that In the end, he directs our attention back to God. Looking at ourselves, we're prone to either pride or despair. Looking at others, we might be prone to judging. But fixing our eyes on God, we are humbled by his mercy. Humbled by his love. Made new, made strong to transcend the circumstances of our life and to do what is good to bear witness to the goodness of God by showing it in our lives, by showing it. This is what lives look like, both for a person and for a community, when our lives are given to Jesus and we live out our allegiance to him. It creates a counterculture, an alternative society, through whom God's own kingdom can come and give life to all. He draws our attention to God who in Christ was loving his enemies, which was all of us. As Bernard of Clairvaux has said, indeed, had God not loved his enemies, he would have no friends. And so Jesus draws our attention to God that our hearts might be dissolved by his goodness, as we sang earlier today, and become people through whom mercy goes forth into the world. How beautiful a beloved community Can that be? Would that be in all of us?
So my encouragement and exhortation today is not simply to you, it's to myself, that we would go out from here today looking for ways, intentionally looking for ways to love our neighbors, even to love our enemies. The crazy thing about this passage, as if Jesus is saying, think of the best thing you could do for the person you, you dislike the most and go do it. For God has done the same for each of us. We can't do it without seeing God in Christ. And so this morning we're going to come to the table for communion. We'll come to the table recognizing that this is God's mercy to us. Even as you draw near to the table, I encourage you to recall to mind, to tell yourself, this is mercy. This is God treating us with a kindness, with a gentleness, with a being for us in such a way that we don't deserve. And he's committed to that. And he does it out of joy because God's joy overflows into the created world and into his actions for us. And he wants to fill us, not with shame this morning and through this passage to go out and do these things, but to be reminded of his love in such a way that it creates joy. And then joy is strength to love the unlovable, to be merciful to the undeserving. Let's pray together. Gracious God, would you please speak to every heart overwhelming, dissolving every heart with your love, that you accept us fully in Christ, that you're for us, you know us inside and out, backwards and forwards, and are committed to us, to our good, to our flourishing, meeting us in the midst of our poverty, hunger, and tears. Pray this morning that every person in their circumstances would be comforted to know that you're there with them meeting them and that that presence would make us strong to do the impossible strong to love our enemies for your sake to surrender our rights for the good of others we know that this spiritual power is not in us so as we come to the table today, would you please so bless and sanctify these elements to be true spiritual food and drink for us, that we may both receive mercy and become mercy givers. In Christ's name, amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it and given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, Take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, afterwards, he took the cup. He gave it to his disciples. He said, drink this, all of you. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. We can take them in remembrance that Christ has died for us and feed on him in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. All those who are baptized and trust in Christ may come to the table joyfully, no matter what our need, and receive mercy afresh to be made strong again so that we can reflect his goodness and love into the world. So as you're able, you can come to the table.